You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. For George Drever, the trouble all started with some nuts. It was 1879, and Drever was the captain of a merchant sailing ship called the Norfolk. On July 2nd, the Norfolk embarked from what was then called the city of Bathurst, but which is now called Banjul, the capital of Gambia. Norfolk's eventual destination was Marseille, where Drever and crew would deliver a haul of what surely sounded like harmless cargo, 600 tons of nuts. On the way out of the river Gambia, Norfolk had run ashore and struck bottom several times doing damage to the hull such that the ship was taking on water and had to be pumped clear every two hours. It took a full week to finally get her into open water, at which point Drever set a northwesterly course. On July 12th, he took bearings and determined the position of the Norfolk as 16 degrees 15 minutes north, 20 degrees 54 minutes west. That put the ship in deep, open water, halfway between the western coast of Africa and Boa Vista, the easternmost island of the Cape Verdes. It should have been clear sailing from then out, but for two things. Drever had gotten the position wrong. In fact, the Norfolk was much closer to Boa Vista, just three miles east of the upper corner of the island, and headed straight into a reef. Which might have been okay, actually, had there been anyone on deck keeping lookout. But there wasn't, because of those damn nuts. At just after one in the morning, the second mate had ordered some of the crew down below to operate the pumps. And when they got to them, the pumps wouldn't work. It's just a bizarre story. The the cargo of ground nuts somehow or other leaks into the pumps, so the pumps aren't working. So the chap who should be on the watch is taken off the watch to try and get these ground nuts out of the pumping gear. And the boat just goes straight onto a reef. Drever ordered the crew to launch the lifeboat, but no sooner had it hit the water than it was impaled by a broken beam. The lifeboat sank immediately, drowning the two crewmen aboard. Another small boat was launched, and two more came from shore to rescue the remaining 17 men, including the captain, George Drever. But George Drever's story doesn't end with his rescue. And it doesn't begin with the nuts, either. They're just a MacGuffin, a McNutfin, 
No, the precipitating cause of a series of events that brought the rest of the plot to my attention through the writing and research of Charles Paxton. Uh, my name is Charles Paxton. I'm a research fellow in statistical ecology at the University of St. Andrews. More than that, Charles Paxton is the foremost and, as far as I know at least, the only expert on Captain Carl Drever. George, George Drever. George, George Drever, sorry. Um, well, I, I knew his name because his sea serpent sighting off the coast of Brazil is kind of one that's regularly given in sea serpent books. And as part of my actual statistical work, I was surveying uh, mentions of sea serpents in newspapers, British newspapers. And then I came across this story of this trial where sea serpents are mentioned. And it was a trial at the Old Bailey, which is the Central Criminal Court of the United Kingdom. And I thought, wow. And, and I knew the story never, ever crossed. I'd never come across this story. I recognized the name because it was the name of this. Uh, this uh, captain of this boat that seen a sea serpent several years earlier. But then here was this whole trial, which seemed to be in part centered around belief in sea serpents. And I was like, wow. And I thought, this is, and as soon as I started reading about it, I thought, this is an extraordinary story. And then I started st searching for more about George, this extraordinary character, George Streeter. And, and then just more and more stuff started coming out about this just extraordinary guy. I mean, yeah. he was just so. <laughs> just it's sort, of, sort of fantastic. I mean, all these fantastic characters who are just thrown up during the Victorian period, and, and he's one of them. When ships wrecked, who got their stuff? The ship's owner? The people who found it? The local government? To answer these questions, and to prevent immoral wreckers from doing anything too awful, Britain long ago created a post, which today is called the Receiver of Wreck, but which up until 1995 was called the Commissioner of Wreck. Whenever a British ship sunk, it was the Commissioner's job to determine what had happened, who was at fault, and who got the loot. It was also his job to ensure the crown took possession of any whales or sturgeons that came ashore or were caught, because all whales, dolphins, and sturgeon found in British waters automatically belonged to the reigning monarch, due to a quirk of 14th century English law that stands to this day, you bunch of weirdos. But that's neither here nor there. The point is that when the Norfolk got all gummed up with nuts and ran against a reef, there had to be a formal investigation, led by the wreck commissioner, Henry Cadigan Rothery. Rothery took his position seriously. He not only investigated wrecks as demanded, but went a step further, looking more broadly into the causes of shipwrecks and compiling data on those causes. That data was later used by Samuel Plimsoll to expose the shoddy and unscrupulous practices of ship owners and underwriters, which we talked about in the episode Shipwreckless. At the inquiry into the Norfolk, Rothery lay the blame unflinchingly upon George Drever, with a bit left over for the second officer. In Rothery's estimation, Drever and not the nuts were responsible for the wreck. He'd run a bad course when leaving Bathurst, touching bottom and injuring the ship, causing it to take on water. He'd gotten his position wrong and set a bad course that led his ship onto the reef. And then he'd left the deck and gone to sleep, leaving his second officer and a skeleton crew to take care of the ship while it barreled towards danger. 
Dreaver said he had no reason to believe that the ship was in danger, and every reason to think that they were in safe open water due to the bearings taken. But when Rothery opened a chart and plotted the course as Dreaver described it, he saw that it wouldn't have saved the Norfolk because that course would have driven the ship onto another island. Dreaver responded to this by saying he had no use for charts anyway and preferred to sail by instinct and experience. To Dreaver, the problem had been his first officer, an Italian national who had been removed back to his home country by the time of the report, and his second officer, whom Dreaver thought was a drunk. He thinks it was really the first mate's fault, but the first mate had kind of disappeared by this stage. Rothery agreed that the second officer wasn't without fault. He shouldn't have removed the lookout man to handle the nut problem, or should at least have replaced him more quickly. He also agreed that the officer was a drunk, that he had bartered away his pistol right before the voyage began in exchange for 12 bottles of gin, and that he was, quote, for some time in a beastly state of intoxication. The court would have been very glad, Rothery wrote, if it could to have punished this man for this misconduct, but it has no power to do so. In his final report, he also insinuated that Drever had tampered with the logbook to alter the location data recorded in it, but he couldn't prove or punish that behavior either. What he could do was suspend Drever's captain's license for six months, which is what he did. But that wasn't all. From what information is available, it appears that the Norfolk hadn't been insured. Yeah, it's slightly ambiguous that, but... Yeah, reading between lines, it appears that the ship is uninsured. So he's in deep financial trouble because he's at least part owner mm. of, of the ship. So he's in, clearly in financial trouble. So he's clearly under a lot of stress. He certainly seems to think there's been an injustice there. Yeah. Um, so basically, he's to blame. What the co financial consequences of that are, I'm not entirely sure. I guess it means he's kind of destitute in the sense that a boat has been lost. Mm. Uh, well, um, he's not going to get any sort of recompense for that. He's not getting any recompense. I don't know whether I'm not an, uh, a maritime historian, so I don't know whether you know whether you have a responsibility to pay back for the um, material you are carrying, ferrying, you know, um, yeah, or anything like that. I, I, I don't know, but I mean, he if he had an investment in the boat, he's lost his investment in the boat, so presumably he's in financial trouble, and his license is taken away from him. So the you know, his career, temporarily at least, is gone. Temporarily not a captain, George Strever was in a tough spot, his professional and financial life in ruins. It's around then that Drever started writing letters to the commissioner of wreck and others involved in the case. In these letters, Drever complained about the outcome, and he detailed a plan for setting things right. It was easy. All he had to do was murder Henry Cadigan Rothery. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Captain and the Serpent, Part 1. Most of George Drever's early life is unknown, even to Charles Paxton. We're not 100% sure when he was born. We're not 100% sure what nation he was born in. The Times newspaper 
when he originally talks about his sea serpent report, say he's a, they refer to him as a Scotchman. Um, but I don't think he necessarily was Scottish. I think because we, I can't find a George Drever who quite fits the bill. However, there is a George Drever from Dublin, where Drever is quite an established name, who um, there are some um, records of him receiving a mate certificate and then a um, second mate certificate and then a first mate certificate. So I think that's that's the dreamer. So that would make him an Irishman rather than a Scotsman. He himself regarded himself as British. Um, that's very clear from his perspectives. And I, I suspect he was from a Protestant background because of some of the things he says later on in his life. Well, he, re- he referred to the Commissioner of Wreck as a modern Jesuit. Yeah, it's an insult which I think somebody who, who's kind of got a Protestant background would use rather than a Catholic background. Aside from his marriage, about which we also know next to nothing. And all this time he's married, we never hear anything about his marriage. Other than that it exists? Apart from the fact it exists. Almost everything that there is to say about Drever before the Wreck Commission has to do with his life at sea. We know that by 1855 he was a second mate, according to his own account. And then in 1856 he appears to have had a shipwreck, probably in the Mauritius Islands. According to an interview Drever gave later in life, this first shipwreck left him, his captain, and 13 other crew members on the islands of Agaliga to the northeast of Mauritius, where they were marooned for several months until they were eventually rescued by traders. This story is a touch suspect since there was a permanent population on Agaliga at the time, but Drever's second shipwreck is known to have happened. Between 18, around about 1862, 1863, um, he became a skipper. And by 1864, uh, well, he goes through a succession of, um, he was captain of several different vessels. Uh, he had a second ship, shipwreck in uh, 1870. Drever was captaining the Como on a voyage from Cardiff to New York when, in the middle of the Atlantic, some of the cargo shifted, causing the ship to founder. The crew had to abandon ship and they were rescued by another vessel. Because later on in his career, he writes letters to various organizations saying that the people who rescued him, can't rem- remember the name of the, uh, the vessel right now, um, that they should... Um, they should be awarded medals or something for actually saving the lives, lives, lives of the crew. This wreck would be the impetus for one of Drever's two lifelong obsessions. So he's had two two shipwrecks, and and the, and those shipwrecks seem to have affected him because he dedicated his other. He had two great obsessions. One was sea serpents, and the other one was um, creating easy to use life saving gear at short notice that could be used to save people's lives in conditions of shipwreck. Before he and his crew were rescued by the Cornelius Grinnell... Yeah, the Cornelius... Cornelius Grinnell, yeah, the Cornelius Grinnell. Drever had given an order, as the coma was sinking, to cut away planks and posts from the bridge house to use as flotation devices. As you're likely to recall from Part 7 of the Fool Killer series, the latter half of the 19th century was a weird time for marine life-saving technology. With the rapid expansion of transatlantic travel, there was a lot of attention on the problem of saving sailors and passengers in distress, but it would take until after the Titanic sank in 1912 for shipboard lifeboats to become the accepted answer. 
Until then, there were numerous other solutions proposed and tried. Various shore-to-ship rescue boats, including the rotating lifeboats of Robert A. Brown and Robert Diamond Mayo, and the Man B. Mortar, a cannon-fired tow line that could be shot from a rescuing ship to the imperiled one, creating a sort of zip line the shipwreck victims could ride via a pair of oversized carabinered pants called breeches buoys. By comparison, Drever's thoughts on marine lifesaving were downright sober-minded. He thought that the sinking of the Como provided a model for marine lifesaving. Instead of building lifeboats or cannon-powered rope swings, he designed blueprints for small boats that could be built quickly, on the spot, out of things sailors were likely to have on hand. Barrels, planks, and sheets. He called his designs "Help Yourself Lifesaving Gear." Yeah. So, um, and if you go to the National Technology Museum of um, Australia, you can actually see some models of Drever's gear, and it's things like like a barrel with um, like four oars around the top, such that as long as water doesn't get into it, it might not it might not sink. Almost like a Looney Tunes, like what what a what a Bugs Bunny might end up. Yeah, Wiley Coyote or someone like that might kind of do it to, <laughs> you know, if they had to do something in a rush or something like that. Yeah, so it's that kind of thing. He's got a sort of hand-powered, in Britain we say pedalo. I think you call it something else in the United States. So it's like a pedalo in Britain is, um, it, it's like it's something you might, it's like a little boat you have in a lake. Oh, like a paddle is, boat, yeah. Paddle boat, yeah, paddle boat, that's what you call it, yeah. We call them pedalos in, mm. in, in, in Britain. And so he's got a sort of hand-powered version of that. And so he's, he's got this, this wonderful idea, and uh, during periods of his life, he returns to this wonderful idea when he's not thinking about sea serpents and being a captain. <laughs> and um, eventually, it sort of leads to his death in a, in a tragic but heroic kind of way. Yeah. And also, it causes him to um, rather dangerously try and cross the English Channel three times and have to be <laughs> rescued, rescued each, each time. Are you keeping track of all these teases? We've got an ill-fated channel crossing, a tragic but heroic death, and death threats against government officials, all of which you can probably start putting together in your imagination given the facts on hand. But none of that stuff might have happened were it not for the weirdest sore thumb of them all, the time Captain George Drever saw the sea serpent. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Shortly after Henry Cadigan Rothery delivered his verdict on the sinking of the Norfolk in September of 1879, he received a threatening letter from George Drever. Drever was told to knock it off or else, and so he did. But nearly two years later, in early 1881, he sent another, and at least one more after that. He sent other letters, too, to John Woodhouse, the Earl of Kimberley, and the head of maritime affairs at the Board of Trade, Thomas Gray. These letters, however many of them there were, are all lost to time. But we do know a little about what they said, based on newspaper reports. Well, we haven't actually got any of the letters, so that's again one of the the, the things about... We can only kind of infer what's kind of been said. It appears that people were quite sympathetic to him, so I think people kind of warned him off doing this. And then he persisted in doing it, and at that point, the authority said, enough's enough, we've got to stop him from doing this. And I guess they were worried that he might actually act on it and then try and... He wrote that, quote, desperate remedies were required for desperate wrongs and demanded recompense, employment, or an asylum from Rothery. In one letter, he said that the wrongs visited upon him by Rothery had caused him to lose all desire for success. He was prepared to take his own life, as well as someone else's. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah, okay, so um, well, he, he threatened to shoot Rothery. Yeah, he threatened to shoot Rothery. <laughs> That's pretty direct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, so, you, you, yeah, I guess, I guess there has to be some sort of legal intervention when that sort of thing happens. On April 12th, 1881, George Drever was arrested on two charges, threatening the life of Henry Rothery and, while he was at it, libeling him, too. Murder is one thing, but don't libel. There isn't a lot of detail available for the trial of George Drever. But one thing that sticks out in most of the reporting about the case is the motive. Yes, Drever felt that Rothery had incorrectly, if not maliciously, blamed him for the sinking of the Norfolk. He felt Rothery was responsible for his financial and professional hardship since that decision. And he stated at trial that he believed there was exculpatory evidence in his favor within the ship's logbook, and that Rothery was purposely keeping it to himself. But that wasn't the whole story. According to the reporters, the prosecution, the defense, even George Drever himself, there was something else that had caused him to threaten Rothery's life. That Rothery had, sometime in the course of the wreck inquiry, insulted Drever by making fun of his belief in sea serpents. As reported in the Times, some evidence was given showing that the prisoner believed in the existence of the sea serpent, and the prisoner himself stated that his conduct had been partly induced by the insults he had received from Mr. Rothery, because he was doing the Almighty's work in making his wonders known. 
The arresting officer, Donald Swanson, who later would head up the Jack the Ripper investigation, testified that when he affected Drever's arrest, the defendant tried to show him pieces of preserved sea serpent he had kept in a jar. Again, why would this crop up? I don't know. He showed his sea serpents to, to, the, arresting, to the arresting officers. After which, he'd threatened to shoot Rothery on the stand before shooting himself. In jail, Drever was held under observation by the house doctor, who testified that he was, quote, suffering from monomania on the subject of the sea serpent. Um, but there seems to be some interaction where Rothery cast aspersions on Drever over his belief of the sea serpent. Do you imagine that would have been public to have inspired such ire or not? I don't think so, because if it'd be public, I think we would have known about it from the Commissioner of Record. Mm. So. And I can't find any other mention of it until the trial. Hmm. So, in a sense, um, if Drever did all this and he, because he was embarrassed about public embar embarrassment about his belief in the sea serpent, um, that would be the, like the Barbara Streisland effect, because clearly, <laughs> right? Yeah, very much. But I, I don't think he was. I don't think he was embarrassed by that because. You know, subsequently, of course, he wrote leaflets and was giving out leaflets about his belief in the sea serpent. So I, I think Drever was perfectly um, happy with people to know about his belief in the sea serpent. Mm -hmm. I think I, I could imagine, well, I can only imagine that the, the problem was that Rothery was kind of rude in some way about it or in a, in a way that, he, that Drever thought he'd been slighted in some way. It seems like even Drever's attorney and his character witnesses might have been fixated on this. He was a good guy, they said, an upstanding member of the community. Kind, gentle, good-hearted soul, in every respect save one. He had an irrational belief in the sea serpent. But what exactly did this sea serpent have to do with the matter at hand? Well, here's, I mean, here's the other mystery. Why? I don't quite understand why the matter of Drever's belief in the sea serpent would have cropped up. Yeah. In the Commission of Wreck Inquiry, because mm. it was a different, it was a different boat to the Pauline. The Pauline was the boat which saw the sea serpent, um, and you know, so what? Why would this topic even even have cropped up? And I, I, and that's one of those little things I'd love to know more yeah. about. Yeah, you know, what happened? But there's another mystery, almost as inscrutable. When and why did everyone besides George Drever conclude that sea monster talk was crazy? As far as far-reaching and long-lasting human beliefs go, sea serpents are some S-tier shit. Right up there with, gosh, I don't even know. Astrology, I guess. Geocentrism, maybe. Belief in sea serpents is probably older than writing. Maybe older than drawing. Potentially older than God. All right, probably not, but close. If you choose a random person out of a hat, from anywhere and any time in the world, and ask them if there is a sea serpent, the good money says they'll answer yes. The Old Norse had Jormungandr, the Midgard serpent, so long that it wrapped around the entire world. The Tagalogs had Laho, the Kapapangans had Lawu, and the Cebuanos had Bakunawa each a giant sea serpent that swallows the moon during an eclipse. In the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia, the native tribes called their landlocked lake serpent Nitaka, 
The Chinese have the water dragon. The Indian subcontinent has the Naga. Japan has both Mizuchi and Yamada no Arachi. And the Greeks, boy howdy, the Greeks. You got your Hydra, you got your Skyla, you got your Cetus, you got your Echidna, you got your Typhon, and that's just the ones with proper names. The twin sea serpents who killed Lacoon and his sons in the Aenid don't even get that luxury, but sea serpents they were. Even the Greeks aren't top of the sea serpent heap. That honor must belong to the city of Ugarit, along the coast of what is now northern Syria. Ugarit had myths of two sea serpents, the ocean god Yam, which might have been more whale-like than snake-like, it's hard to say, and his servant Lotan, a seven-headed sea serpent. Both Yam and Lotan were, in the Ugaritic religion, defeated by their patron god Hadad Baal. Yam and Lotan are particularly interesting because of the way they seem to seed their stories throughout the mythologies of subsequent peoples of the Middle East and the Levant. Ugarit was destroyed around 1200 BC by the Sea Peoples. Man, one day we gotta talk about the Sea Peoples. But the blueprint laid down by Yam and Lotan outlived the city by far. In Canaan, Hadad and Lotan even kept their same names. In Babylon, Hadad became Marduk and Yam became Tiamat. Heroes and gods slaying chaotic sea serpents are so widespread that Joseph Campbell figured it was a topos, shared instinctively by all humanity. But it could be that Jormungandr and Thor, and even Indra and Vritra, are the direct descendants of Ugarit stories. One book that certainly appears to have been inspired by Hadad, Yam, and Lotan is the Bible. Yam is mentioned specifically by name in the 74th Psalm, with the psalmist casting Yahweh as yet another transliteration of Hadad, writing, It was you who destroyed Yam with your might. Usually, the sea serpent stuff in the Bible is more confusing and more confused. There are, generally speaking, three named sea serpents in the Old Testament. Tannin, Rahab, and the Leviathan. But oftentimes the characteristics of one seem to bleed into those of another, and in Christian translations of the Hebrew Bible, things tend to be even worse, with all of them lumped in inconsistently as one thing. Sometimes the term is great whale, or dragon, or else leviathan sticks around, making it super confusing to biblical literalists who have to explain how God could have both created, destroyed, and immortalized the same individual creature. Of the three, it's Leviathan who gets the most play through time, and for most of European history, when people thought they saw the sea serpent, note the article, THE sea serpent, they were talking about the Leviathan. Religions, myths, and legends are a dime a dozen, though. What makes sea monsters different from other common motifs shared among civilizations is simple. People saw them. Both Pliny and Aristotle wrote about the existence of sea monsters. Of course, both of them were frustratingly credulous about all manner of mythical beasts, like the unicorn and the vegetable lamb, but in the Historia Animalium, fucking Aristotle seems to give first-hand accounts of sea monsters he saw himself. The Roman historian Livy gave an account of the Punic Wars, wherein he describes a giant serpent living near Ithaca that ate a whole bunch of Roman soldiers until they managed to kill it with a combination of ballistas and catapults. 
According to Livy, and Valerius Maximus, and Seneca, and Florus, and Silvius Italicus, and Aulus Gellius, and even Pliny, they preserved the skull and skin of the creature and displayed it for all to see at a temple. Diodorus Siculus describes a different incident, wherein a 60-foot-long serpent regularly crawled onto land to eat cattle, until a party managed to capture it with nets, after 20 of them were killed, and dragged it to Alexandria alive, where it was presented to King Ptolemy II. In the last year of his reign as King of Norway, Saint Olaf was said to have killed a sea serpent and thrown its body against a mountain, the marks of which are supposed to be visible even today. 500 years later, Olus Magnus, Archbishop of Uppsala, decided to draw a map of the Nordic countries, called the Cardamarina. We've talked about the Cardamarina at least three times I can think of off the top of my head, but if you don't remember or haven't listened to any of that, you probably still have an inkling of the Cardamarina, because it is the most famous map of the let's draw sea monsters on it variety. But Magnus wasn't content for the Cardamarina to be his only whopping contribution to the field. In his 1555 book, History of the Northern Peoples, he writes about several more sea monsters, including a 200-foot-long, 20-foot-thick sea serpent near Bergen that lives in a cave, eats lambs, and has a hairy neck, and another somewhat smaller sea serpent that only appears to foretell a change in the Norwegian crown. Two centuries later, the Lutheran bishop of Norway, Eric Pontopadon took up Magnus' writings with a more skeptical eye, writing, He mixes truth and fable together according to the relations of others. Nevertheless, Pontopadon concludes that the sea serpent is real. Quote, I have questioned its existence myself, till that suspicion was removed by full and sufficient evidence from credible and experienced fishermen and sailors in Norway, of which there are hundreds who can testify that they have annually seen them. Some of our North traders that come here every year with their merchandise think it is a very strange question when they are seriously asked whether there be any such creature. They think it as ridiculous as if the question was put to them whether there be such fish as eel or cod. In 1640, Adam O'Leary's wrote about a Swedish nobleman who had recently seen the sea serpent swimming off the shores of a Norwegian hill. In 1687, a sea serpent was seen on several occasions and by at least a dozen people in a Danish fjord, in clear conditions, coiled up in the shallow water. According to the priest, Jonas Ramus, when the winds and waves kicked up, the snake straightened out and left for open waters, at which point the witnesses were able to see exactly how long it was, though Ramus didn't himself say how long they said. The most famous of the pre-Enlightenment sea serpent sightings was most definitely that of Hans Egede. Egede was a Norwegian Lutheran pastor who, in 1711, had heard about how some of the old Norsemen had colonized Greenland centuries earlier. Those colonies had gone dark, lost all contact with the motherland, and never been heard from since. This story terrified Egede. What had happened to the Norsemen of Greenland? Were they still alive? And if they were, might they still be practicing the forbidden Old Norse habit of Catholicism? <laughs> it was too horrifying to contemplate, so Egeda petitioned the king. With his support, Egeda planned to finally return to Greenland, track down the lost Norsemen, and convert them to Lutheranism. 
But when Egeda arrived in Greenland in 1722, there were no Norse nowhere. They were all long dead. So instead, he started converting the Inuits. There's a common legend that, since the Inuits had never seen bread, Egeda changed the line in the Lord's Prayer to, Give us this day our daily seal. But the actual story is even better. Because not only did the Inuits not know bread, but Egeda didn't know Inuit. So when he tried to translate the Lord's Prayer, he had to do so by hunting and pecking what he'd heard them say. He'd gathered what he thought to be the Inuit word for food from a young boy and inserted that in the place of bread. But it didn't mean food. So for a while, that line of the prayer was said, Give us this day our daily, that's delicious! What was I saying? Oh, right. On his way to Greenland, Egeda encountered the sea serpent. Along with the crew, he, quote, saw a most terrible creature resembling nothing we saw before. The monster lifted its head so high that it seemed to be higher than the crow's nest on the mainmast. The head was small and the body short and wrinkled, the unknown creature was using giant fins which propelled it through the water. Later, the sailors saw its tail as well. The monster was longer than our whole ship. Because of Egeda's standing as an honest and sober pastor, not to mention a picture he had drawn up of the event, his account was taken as just about the gold standard of sea serpent sightings. There tended to be a new one every year or two, sometimes in fits and starts throughout the 16 and 1700s most of them around Norway and Denmark. Most were collected by Pontopodon, with varying levels of gullibility. In the early 19th century, those sightings, which had been sporadic and localized, changed significantly. Suddenly, there were hundreds of them, and they were no longer isolated to Norway. The sea serpent was loose. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At the turn of the 19th century, the world caught sea serpent fever. There were likely several reasons for this shift. For starters, ocean travel exploded. There were a lot more people on the water to spot serpents than there'd been previously. And a lot of them were new to the experience and thus more likely to see things they didn't recognize. Furthermore, there was Mary Anning, whom we talked about in the episode Cassandra's. When she was 12 years old, Anning and her brother Joseph had dug up a four-foot-long fossilized skull of a giant marine reptile. She had then gone back and found the torso of the creature, and sold both to a squire named Henry Henley, who then sold it to the British Museum. In 1814, Everard Home described the remains as belonging to an ichthyosaur. Nine years later, Anning found the first complete example of a plesiosaur, the long-necked aquatic dinosaur that so many future sea monsters would borrow for their shape. Together, the plesiosaur and the ichthyosaur ignited imaginations, not just of what once roamed the seas, but what might still be out there. For millennia, there had been rumors and sightings of other marine monsters, mermaids and krakens particularly. Recently, it had been decided that what sailors had actually been seeing when they spotted those creatures were manatees, dugongs, and giant squid. These explanations simultaneously confirmed and debunked the krakens and mermaids and seemed to point towards a similar conclusion for the sea serpent. It might not be exactly as Pontopidon had described. But didn't it make sense that there'd be some basis for those reports, just like the Kraken? Maybe sea serpents were still surviving ichthyosaurs or plesiosaurs, or some other ancient, even more snake-like beast hiding out there in the ocean. It wasn't just fossils, either. New species of animals were being discovered at a pace that had never and has never been reached before or after. If we look at the rate at which people are discovering new animals, that period is the point where we're discovering like more species of whale than any other point, virtually any other point in the history of yeah. science since, since the 18th century. So it seems to me, if people are finding lots and lots of weird whales, and they are, and then there's people reporting anecdotally sea serpents. Right. It seems to me a bit weird to be completely skeptical about it because why wouldn't there be serpentine animals? There doesn't seem any reason for them not to be. It was indeed quite reasonable to assume some sort of sea serpent was out there, and many reasonable people did. Louis Agassiz one of the key players in the debate about Earth's geological history, evolution, and a renowned ichthyologist who named and categorized the Megalodon, and who was a terrifically awful racist, told a lecture hall in Philadelphia that he believed something like the sea serpent was probably still out there and would soon be found. William Hooker, 
botanist in charge of Kew Gardens, said that the sea serpent, quote, may at least be assumed as a sober fact in natural history, quite unconnected with the gigantic exploits of the god Thor or the fanciful absurdities of the Scandinavian mythology. We cannot suppose that the most ultra-skeptical can now continue to doubt with regard to facts attested by such highly respectable witnesses. Those witnesses were everywhere, particularly in New England, where sightings of a gigantic sea serpent around Gloucester, Massachusetts became a regular occurrence starting in 1817. Hundreds of people attested to the existence of the Gloucester Serpent, often all at once. Groups of fishermen, sailors, and even landlubbers staring out to sea came forward together telling consistent stories at a time of seeing a 60 to 120 foot long snake slipping through the harbor. In one especially well-publicized sighting in August of 1817, an American naval ship tried to shoot it with a cannon. The evidence, in the form of eyewitness testimony alone, was so voluminous that the sea serpent was soon treated as almost an established scientific fact, as Hooker suggested. Sea serpent mania reached its zenith in the 1840s, when it was so common to see one that sometimes a sighting would barely even make the news. And yet, just 30 years later, Captain George Drever was considered insane for believing in them. So, what changed? That's, that's an interesting question, which I'm actually kind of researching at the moment here, how attitudes change towards the sea serpent over the course of the 19th century. And it appears that whilst in the first part of the 19th, first half of the, well, until about the 1840s, people, quite prominent people, are genuinely having a belief that sea serpents could be real. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1840s, that belief changes. There are a lot of theories, and most of them can coexist fairly peacefully. It's more an issue of portioning out the blame among them. The most popular theory involves a guy we've talked a lot about this year, Richard Owen. The sea serpent drove Owen crazy. Not the way it drove George Strever crazy, but close. He was irked that so many people, even intelligent, sensible people, were so ready to believe in something just because of eyewitnesses. Owen hated eyewitnesses, and he secretly stewed on all the credulous reports of the sea serpent given in newspapers and books for years, until finally he hit his boiling point. On August 6th, 1848, the HMS Daedalus was on its way to St. Helena. At around five in the afternoon, while in the middle of the Atlantic, some 300 miles west of Namibia, the midshipman, Mr. Sertoris, noticed something rapidly approaching the ship. Captain McKay wrote, On our attention being directed to the object, it was discovered to be an enormous serpent, with head and shoulders kept about four feet constantly above the surface of the sea, and as nearly as we could approximate by comparing it with the length of what our main topsail yard would show in the water, 
There was at the very least 60 feet of the animal, no portion of which was, to our perception, used in propelling it through the water, either by vertical or horizontal undulation. It passed rapidly, but so close under our lee quarter that had it been a man of my acquaintance, I should have easily recognized his features with the naked eye. It held on at the pace of from 12 to 15 miles per hour, apparently on some determined purpose. The diameter of the serpent was about 15 or 16 inches behind the head, which was, without any doubt, that of a snake, and it was never, during the 20 minutes that it continued in sight of our glasses, once below the surface of the water. Its color, a dark brown, with yellowish-white about the throat. It had no fins, but something like the mane of a horse, or rather a bunch of seaweed, washed about its back. Even in a time when sea serpent sightings regularly took up graphs in the papers, the reports from the Daedalus were exceptional. They were made by multiple men, all of them in the Royal Navy, several of them officers, including a captain. They described the serpent in detail, close up, for a long period of time, with very little hesitation or qualification. And they were accompanied by pictures, drawings splayed out across the Illustrated London News of the giant snake dwarfing Her Majesty's ship in direct proximity. It stoked the already burning fires of sea serpent curiosity around England and the world, and Richard Owen found it all a bit too much. He wrote a letter to the Times of London in which he lambasted belief in sea serpents generally and discounted the report of the Daedalus specifically. I am far from insensible to the pleasures of the discovery of a new and rare animal, he wrote, but before I can enjoy them, certain conditions, e.g. reasonable proof or evidence of its existence, must be fulfilled. Owen most definitely did not find the proof reasonable. When fairly analyzed, it lies in a small compass, but my knowledge of the animal kingdom compels me to draw other conclusions from the phenomena than those which the gallant captain seems to have jumped at. <laughs> He's slipping right into it, you can tell, right? Owen systematically dismantled McKay's account from head to fins to body to tail, even the way it swam. He took apart the descriptions given by captain and crew, as well as the drawings, and persuasively argued that whatever had swam by the Daedalus that day had to be a mammal. Owen thought it most likely an elephant seal. But the Daedalus wasn't the point. Owen had bigger things on his mind, like the future of science. To Owen, the question of sea serpents was microcosmic of a larger issue, that too much of scientific thought and public opinion revolved around titles and clout and station. Science resembled a civil courthouse, where what mattered was who and how many you could get to swear to a thing. Now, Owen, on the other hand, was an empiricist. He wanted evidence, not testimony. And if there were to be testimony, it should be weighed by the witness's expertise of the matter at hand, not how much land or money he had, or whether his name started with Sir or Lord or such. 
the Daedalus was the perfect example. Captain McKay didn't know anything about zoology, about paleontology, or reptiles, or mammals. His testimony was accepted simply because he was a captain in the Royal Navy. Respectable, therefore correct. That there were, by the 1840s, hundreds of people willing to testify to seeing the sea serpent didn't strengthen the case, Owen said. Actually, it weakened it. Because the more sea serpents there were to be seen in 1840, the more there must have been in 1740, and 1640, and 40, and 40 BC, and 40 million BC. And yet, in all that time, there was no evidence. No bones, no skin, no fossils, no signs whatsoever of the continued existence of the plesiosaur or the ichthyosaur, let alone anything more snake-like than them. The arguments he uses are very kind of modern ones. I mean, he even ends his argument by saying there's more evidence for the existence of ghosts than there is of, of, of the sea serpent. Even today, Richard Owens' argument against the sea serpent is compelling and entertaining and persuasive, which leads a lot of folks to conclude that it was Owen who was chiefly responsible for ending the widespread belief in their existence. But not Charles. I don't think so, but one of my colleagues does think so. And I'm with him, actually. Owen may have played a role, but luckily there are other contenders, one of which also has to do with the Daedalus. Simon Cook, an expert in Victorian illustration, thinks that focusing on McKay and Owen is missing the point. What made the Daedalus story so compelling, he says, was the pictures, the drawings, paintings, and lithographs of a great and terrifying sea serpent dwarfing the Daedalus were what really captured imaginations, and with them, hearts and minds. But that was a double-edged sword because those were not the only illustrations of the 1848 encounter. In the very popular satirical magazine Punch, Richard Doyle presented a series of cartoons making fun of McKay's claim. In one, the serpent is pictured rising straight up out of the ocean to an impossible height so that it can roar at a sailor in the ship's crow's nest. In another, the comically drawn serpent is pictured coiling onto an island and chasing the crew of the Daedalus away from their campsite. In a third, the whole crew is seen riding on the serpent's back as their ship sinks in the distance. These drawings are every bit as compelling as their more serious progenitors, but in the opposite way. They paint McKay and his lieutenants as idiotic children playing make-believe. And Doyle's pictures are hardly the only ones. G.A. Sala produced a panorama for the Great Exhibition, otherwise known as the 1851 London World's Fair. It showed Captain McKay leading the serpent to England by a bridle. The serpent is drawn in the shape of an impossibly long corkscrew, implying that the beast is the result of too much drinking. And from there, the sea serpent became something of a motif. Yes, it was painted and drawn with seriousness, but it was also deployed, commonly, as a comical trope, a way for cartoonists to lampoon governments, politicians, and anything else they set their sights on. 
1849, Puppet Show published a political cartoon which featured the Great Land Serpent, a wending, snake-like train gobbling up bags of money. This was lampooning the railway mania, a stock bubble that led to a huge economic downturn in the 1840s. Cook's argument is that all of this japery took the starch out of the sea serpent, bringing it down to an object of absurdity and ridicule. Another possibility stems from another guy we've talked a lot about, particularly this year, Charles Lyell. We most recently talked about Lyle and Owen at the beginning of the year in the Link Missing series, when we also talked about Agassiz and Hooker, come to think of it. Lyle was the creator of a geological theory called uniformitarianism, which posited that the Earth was shaped gradually and continuously by the same forces in the past which are present today. Erosion, volcanic eruptions, sediment pressure, etc. This was in contrast to Agassiz and his mentor, Georges-Louis Leclerc, the Comte de Buffon, who advocated for catastrophism, the idea that the Earth started out super hot and then gradually cooled down over the centuries, but when it cooled, it cooled unevenly, leading to sudden, catastrophic, mega-earthquakes and volcanoes and other such literally biblical events which created the mountains, rivers, lakes, and valleys in a matter of days, if not hours. Lyle's theory was better, but still incomplete, and he tended to take it too far. Eventually, he decided that Earth had always existed and would always exist, in essentially its current state. This didn't just include the mountains and rivers and such, even the life on Earth should be basically static, unchanging from the beginning of time until the end of days, neither of which he figured were real. There were problems with this hypothesis, nothing but problems, almost, but one of the chief ones was the slowly emerging fossil record that Mary Anning had tipped off with the ichthyosaur. Paleontology was still incredibly young, not a lot of fossils had been found, but those that had been suggested a pattern that deeply unsettled Lyle. The deeper you dug, the more stratified different kinds of life seemed to be in time. The mammals were always found near the top, the dinosaurs below them, the bony fishes went back further, but stopped before the invertebrates took over. The strata suggested a sort of progressive advancement through time beginning with simple organisms at the bottom and marching up towards the current ecosystem. At first, Lyle argued, not incorrectly, that there were too few fossils recovered to draw any conclusions from this trend. Eventually, he assured people, and himself, a mammal would be found with the dinosaurs, and everyone would be able to rest easy, most especially Lyle. And if not that then it could go the other way. An ancient, gigantic reptile might be found living today. Like, just to pull a name out of a hat, the sea serpent. 
Charles Lyell then became the most prominent man of science to support the existence of sea serpents in the first half of the 19th century, just in time for the sightings in New England to become near constant. In 1845, Lyell came to Boston and was intrigued by leaflets advertising a new paleontological find made by Albert C. Koch. It was the fossilized remains of a giant sea serpent, of course, 35 meters long and almost fully complete. Koch named it Hydragos Silimani. He'd found it in a gravel bed in Alabama, which Lyle went to visit, hoping to discover more proof of the sea serpent. He was very much let down. In Alabama, Lyle realized that the fossils in the bed weren't of a serpent, but of what Richard Owen had already named Zeuglodon, or Bacillosaurus, an ancient ancestor of modern whales. In New York, anatomist Jeffries Wyman went to visit Koch's display and determined it was a purposeful fraud. The hydragos was a hoax, a composite of bones taken from many different individuals. In 1808, a large hunk of unidentified carcass had washed up on the island of Stronsay in the Orkney Islands of Scotland. This globster, as the terminology disgustingly goes, measured 55 feet long, even though part of its tail was missing. The Natural History Society of Edinburgh couldn't identify it as any known creature and concluded it must be a sea serpent. It was given the scientific name Halsedress Pontabadani, after our old friend, the Bishop of Norway. The so-called Stronsay Beast was, for a time, the best and only physical evidence of sea serpents alive in modern times, and Lyle liked its chances. But in 1849, John Goodsir, father of cell theory, publicly and definitively concluded that it was a fluke the body of a basking shark, which had decomposed in such a way that it appeared serpent-like to the untrained eye, or the hopeful one. To science historian and skeptic Sherry Lynn Lyons, the Hydragos and the Stronsay Beast are representative of the best explanation for the turn against sea serpents. She argues that what sea serpents had going for them over mermaids and krakens was that by the 1840s, people were very well acquainted with fake mermaids and fake krakens, both accidental misidentifications and conscious hoaxes. But the sea serpent had been different. There was little physical evidence of any kind, which also meant that there wasn't much to dissolve. But Dr. Koch and the Stronsay Beast brought the serpent down to the level of its already dismissed relatives. And it wasn't just those two either. In 1848, the same year as the Daedalus serpent, there was another attention-grabbing sighting. The master of a ship in Glasgow called Marianne wrote a letter to the London Times in which he claimed that he had recently met another ship named Daphne outside Lisbon Harbor. The crew of the Daphne told him that 10 days earlier, they had run up against a sea serpent, which had attacked their ship. They had managed to repel it just barely by firing a deck gun loaded with nails at it. 
There were problems with this story. The letter gave precise coordinates for where the sea serpent had attacked, about 50 miles off the coast of the Congo, which would be roughly 2,000 miles from Lisbon as the crow flies. Daphne couldn't possibly have reached Portugal 10 days later to talk to the captain of the Glasgow-based Marianne in that time. And by the way, when people looked into it, that Glasgow-based ship Marianne didn't exist. The story was a newspaper hoax made up by some anonymous reporter. While Lyle was in Boston, the Linnaean Society there took into evidence what was said to be the remains of a young sea serpent, like the one that had been seen in Gloucester in 1817 and 18. It was three feet long with humps all along its back and was named Scoliophis atlanticus. But soon the specimen came under the inspection of Agassiz, who determined it was a regular, common ground snake, which had been deformed by a spinal disease. In 1852, the New York Tribune published a letter by Charles Seabury, captain of the American whaling ship Monongahela. Seabury claimed his crew had discovered a sea serpent in the South Pacific and had given chase. They had successfully harpooned the monster, and it had then dragged the ship for 16 hours. Finally, it died, and they brought the specimen on board. It was, Seabury claimed, a 103-foot-long snake covered in blubber, with a mouth ringed in 93 razor-sharp, inward-facing teeth. It was too big to get into port, so Seabury determined to dissect it and keep the skin and skull for the record. While in the process, the ship ran across a brig called the Gypsy and passed along Seabury's letter to them for publication. The account started in the Tribune, but soon spread to the Illustrated London News, the London Times, and even the preeminent journal, Zoology. There were doubts, of course, but they would be allayed as soon as Monongahela came back to ground. Unfortunately, it never did. It sunk in the Arctic with all hands. So, the truth of what Seabury had captured may have remained a mystery forever. Except that when the Philadelphia Bulletin ran the story, they first reached out to the captain of the Gypsy, who said he had never encountered any such ship or captain, nor heard of or seen a sea serpent. It was another hoax. Eventually, Charles Lyle had to conclude the sea serpent was not out there and had to square the circle of his geological theories with that fact. He hypothesized that although the Earth was infinitely old and mostly the same as it ever was, the climate of the planet did go through circular repeating phases, colder than hotter. And while the animal life of Earth was not progressive, it did regularly shift back and forth by the hand of God to meet the climate. So, he figured, there had been sea serpents, plesiosaurs, and the rest, and there would one day be again, when the planet reheated. But for now, it was the age of mammals, who also must one day recede, and then reemerge. 
this theory, eh, it did not get a lot of traction. Aside from in the pages of Punch, where a cartoon was drawn of dinosaurs in a lecture hall examining the skull of an extinct Charles Lyell and wondering whether he might ever return. Brutality. So, those are the theories. And each one probably played a part. Hoaxes and mistaken identity cases injured the concept, a trend that was exacerbated in the public by the proliferation of silly drawings and cartoons. Meanwhile, in the halls of science, Richard Owen was triumphant over the embarrassed Charles Lyell. Altogether, it was enough to turn sea serpent claims into jokes, and those who made them into laughingstocks. Except that that doesn't seem to have happened. Not fully, at least. Sure, from the mid-19th century on, both civilians and scientists were becoming more critical of sea serpents. But the idea wasn't dismissed. Not by a long shot. There were still plenty of professionals arguing for their existence until after the turn of the next century, the 20th century, including our boy Thomas Huxley. The sea serpent remained a mainstay in art and literature, particularly the popular works of Jules Verne and Arthur Conan Doyle. And newspapers continued to publish credulous reports of sea serpent sightings, which the public continued to lap up, including one particularly astonishing tale from one particularly astonishing source, Captain George Drever himself. That is next time on The Captain and the Serpent, Part 2. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. This show is brought to you in large part by fellow listeners who contribute to its making. Give them a round of applause. A particularly hearty ovation goes out this month to Raymond Lyons, Graham W. Wright, and Ian Goodfellow. Thank you, and everyone else who makes the constant possible. If you'd like to count yourself among that rarefied number, head on over to patreon.com theconstant and sign up to support the show. For your trouble, you'll receive access to new episodes early and ad-free, as well as bonus subscriber-only content on the Constant Secret feed. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1893, officers at Fort Sheridan spotted a 50-foot-long sea serpent that, quote, caused them to give up drink, this has been The Constant. Of course, both of them were frustratingly credulous about all manner of mythical beasts, like the unicorn, Unicorn? Mm. Lewis Agassiz. You're wrong. You're lying. <laughs>